The time was December 1972. Australia was seeing its first election campaign with a theme song and the involvement of film and television celebrities, coming out for Labor and leader Gough Whitlam. On this episode of Beyond the Crown, it's big hair, it's groovy gowns and so much excitement for the 100-year celebration of Stanthorpe in 1972 with the Apple and Grape Harvest Festival. I went south of the border past Tenterfield to meet Carolyn Robinson, who was crowned the Centenary Queen as Carol Scoose. And we talked about her career in nursing and midwifery across the world and her beautiful gardens that she has designed and grown across the Granite Belt and New England region. I'm here eating apple cake and on a gorgeous veranda. I'm here in uh, New South Wales. I've gone on a little bit of a quest and coming to New South Wales is a little different these days with COVID, with the border open. This was being, we've made it possible. I'm here with Carolyn Robinson, nay Carolyn Scuse. Carolyn, you were the 72 Queen. I want to say this is your 50th Jubilee. Sort of like, you know, Queen Elizabeth II celebrating her 70th. That's cute. Not quite, but <laughs> nevertheless, you've brought it to mind. I hadn't really considered that it was 50 years, but of course it is. Yeah, you're a month off the 50th Jubilee. I think we can just say over cake, happy 50 years, eh? <laughs> Thank you. Wished I was only 50. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn, I want to start off our chat just talking, going back to 1972. When you were asked to be, you know, an entrant for the Apple and Grape Harvest Festival, and it was the centenary year for Stanthorpe too, so this was an incredibly important, but there was quite a lot of excitement. There was a lot of fervour. We wanted to celebrate, you know, the triple digits turning 100 for Stanthorpe. Can you give us a little bit of a feel what was it like in 72 leading up, or and 71 leading up to the festival? Certainly there was a, a, a lot of, well, even in 71, there, there was a lot of, as you say, lead up and um, there was a lot of editorials and, and, and in the paper they had um, composite photographs of what had happened over the last 100 years, all of that sort of stuff. So there, there was this sense of excitement about it coming and, um, I mean, a lot of energy went into um, the, commi- the committee that um, um, produced it. Um, you know, they, they brought all sorts of people and acts into that festival that they hadn't done before and probably haven't done since. Yeah, we're going to touch on that um, in next conversation. That's very true. Why were you asked, or who did the asking? How did you get become an entrant? Well, I was I was um, doing my nursing training in Brisbane at the time, so you know, for the previous two years I wasn't really on the scene. But um, there was a, a packing, um, uh, an apple pa- packing, vegetable marketing um, a group called Dobson and Co in Applethorpe itself and um, so they asked me if I'd be an entrant for the it was just for, it was just serendipity really that it happened to be the 100th year yep um, and I guess my father had an awful lot to do with Dobson's because he he used to market a lot of my father's produce. So yeah, that's probably yep. how it came to about. I mean, those big packing houses in Applethorpe are still there, but they're not 
they're not used, of course, any longer. Yes, they've become a little bit of a, a shadow of history on the hillside, that kind of thing. That's I'm getting a bit yeah. poetic there about them. Yeah. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. They yeah. aren't used that no. that same way as how No, payment. because in those days, I don't, most of the fruit and vegetables in those days were actually sent to the markets and Stanthorpe was the Stanthorpe district was full of small individual family farms and, of course, that's all gone, which is such a pity. And, of course, you've got these big agri-farming-type businesses now that yep. are sort of sozzled up really by by the big supermarkets and so forth, you know. so That's a really good point. And, I mean, by 72 for the centenary... Australia-wide, there'd been tree-pull schemes. A lot of people were getting out of the orchard business. Well, there were still a lot of orchards when I was in 1972, but, I mean, relatively few exist nowadays. Yes. Um, were your family doing cardboard boxes by 72 or were you still doing the timber crates? No, they were, they were doing cardboard boxes, but I yeah. do remember the days when we had to wrap the apples in tissue paper and put them in um, in, um, in wooden crates. I think, um, and I'm still chasing this story, there are delightful stories prior to the Apple Blossom Festival at the Stanthorpe show, the ag show, of young women, teens, the ones that would work in their family farm, who'd enter the competitions for the apple wrapping, who was the fastest and did it the best. And I think that's just adorable. Well, it is. <laughs> and we all worked, you know. <laughs> As I said, the Stanthorpe district was full of individual family farms, and um, and all the children did did um, we did work. I mean, I did get paid a dollar fifty an hour. It's all right, eh? Dollar <laughs> fifty. You're do- killing it in seventy-two. No, no, it wasn't. It was. F- 50 cents an hour. Oh, then then inflation struck. 50, it was 50 cents an hour. <laughs> no, you weren't doing as great and in I 72. Re- <laughs> I remember weeding my father's celery and um, sticking at it for three hours and thinking, wow, I've just earned myself a whole dollar and 50 cents. <laughs> oh, now you're mentioning celery. So did your father have a multiple produce farm and orchard? Yes, he... He had a relatively small orchard with um, apples, but mostly his expertise was in um, vegetable growing, particularly celery, which is not an easy crop to grow. Mm. And that was his speciality, really, celery. And it's then- funny, celery keeps coming up as a staple from around the granite belt that everyone was growing in conjunction with their stone fruit and apples. Well, probably, except that there weren't that many celery growers. Um, Specialist ones, no. It was always, everyone had it on the side. Yes. Especially, right. I'm actually thinking Ballandine. Yes. Definitely not the main hub of celery no. growers, but uh, the Haslets were definitely they were huge. the biggest ones. Yeah, yeah. huge and celery growers, yep. So, and it seems to be a northern Stanthorpe sort of thing. I did make a joke with one of my former queens, should it be the apple, grape and celery festival, but she wasn't having it. No. Well, you would, I, I, celery needs, needed a lot of attention. I mean, it was three months in the, in the seed beds before it was even prick, um, transplanted out into the field. Was, yeah, that's intensive, So isn't it's it? a long, it was a long period of time. And um, the other thing, celery has enormous water needs. 
Yes. And in the northern part of the Stanthorpe district, you've got clay subsoils. So you had better um, moisture holding, holding soils than that around Ballandine. And that's why you've got grapes down there because they need good drainage. Yes. And yep. so you've got deeper sandy soils around Ballandine. So that's much better for stone fruit and, and grapes. You know what? That's actually a perfect segue to say. The Carolyn Robinson that we're going to be talking about today is Carolyn the garden designer, but there's so much more to your life prior to what we know you about know about you locally. So we're going to come to that. So to hear you talking about those different subsoils, I just want to launch straight into garden design, but I'm put I'm gonna pump the brakes a bit and go back to 72. So we're gonna come back to garden design. Tell me though a little bit about what it was like growing up on the orchard and how your father managed his orchard and his farm where does one start all I know is dad was an unbelievably hard worker and um he did have um laboring help but he did an awful lot himself um he put an enormous amount of time money and energy into improving his soils and rotating his crops um, I certainly remember my grandparents lived at the on on the eastern side of our farm, and we'd get off the school bus and we'd have afternoon tea with our grandparents, and then walk up through the the orchards. And I don't know how many apples I ate between there and home. <laughs> and uh, often, when I think about the apples we ate that weren't properly washed <laughs> with sprays on them and so forth, but so far, so good. It's worked out for you. Yeah. That's all right. But they what were varieties. Lovely. Did your father grow? Um, Granny Smith, um, the old-fashioned Red Delicious. They were the main marketing ones. But he also had some varieties, some wonderful old varieties that are almost like cottage varieties these days. One particular one was wine sap, which oh, was a very, yes. very sort of bitey, sweet, tarty apple. Um, and early Macintosh, he had a few of those. Um, I can't can't remember any of the other special sort of. He just had a few trees of those. To hear wine sap and early Macintosh mentioned, and yes. knowing that they were grown in the seventies, I think is lovely because these are varieties that I see mentioned in ag reports from the twenties and thirties, but then they disappear. Well, that's right, and I I, I imagine they're probably. It's, the trees are probably available somewhere, but they're really they'd be boutique orchards, I suspect. Yeah, yep. You wouldn't. They're not obviously commercially viable. Otherwise, they wouldn't have disappeared. And taste change too. I mean, as a kid, for me, growing up in the eighties, it was always Red Delicious yes. or Jonathan, and the Granny Smiths came in seasonally because uh, right. it's a different type of apple. Well, they've also done a lot of genetic alteration, of course, for sh- yes. shelf life and so forth. Yeah. Um, whereas that wasn't happening then. Yes, and it's only just recently a friend shared on social media her Jonathan apple crop and I was sitting yes. there staring at it thinking, but that was what you bought at the supermarket That's back right. in the day, but you don't see it now. Yes. And the multiple varieties that we That's can right. have now. Yeah. Well, a lot of the varieties certainly weren't around. You know, Pink Lady is a huge seller these days. but I mean, Delicious. Yeah. Yes. And Royal Gala, that's another yes. modern variety. Yes, that's how right. I frame it. Yes. That makes me sound like... I don't know. I'm 100 years old. But, yeah, def- apples are definitely something that go in and out of fashion. Yes. Yeah. Actually, speaking of apples, Carolyn, what we've got here on my laptop, I did a trip to Queensland State Archives. 
I was expecting, probably more hoping, to be able to find your last name and some of the other last names of the queens in their records as an official record of the festival. But I came up with nothing. But I was really surprised it was actually the reference uh, archivist Jalan Neal who found a Pamela's goose or Pam's goose on their records. And I just want to show you some photos that we've got so we can have a chat about it. Tell me, first of all, is this definitely your sister's is like Festival CSI all of a sudden? Isn't yes, it? it is. Yes, it is. It <laughs> and it's is a lovely close-up of um, yes. Pam. Yeah, because you and your sister look so similar because I've brought my festival brochure along too in your fabulous 72 gown. We're going to have a chat about that soon too. Now, you are the eldest sister. What we couldn't figure out at State Archives is when this photo may have been taken. Looking at how Pam is dressed, I mean, it looks like it could potentially be a 70s kind of dress, maybe 60s. Um, you lived beside DPI too, so that's actually a clue to me. State Archives only kept government records. That's right. These probably very hero shots. I mean, she looks so glam for fruit picking. Who frocks <laughs> up like this? Only the Scoose family. Talk me through what I can actually learn from these photos from, I keep actually putting my arm in the apple cake, which I think is very appropriate here. So we've got, that's a close-up of Pam. Then there's Pam, she's got the bag, the picker's bag, and she's pouring apples into the big wooden bins. Look, I suspect it was probably between 1969 and 1972 that that photograph was taken because... Myself and Annette, my older sister, were away yeah. at the time and it was away at Teachers Training College and I was away doing my nursing training and Pam was the only one at home. So I suspect that's when it was ah, probably taken and obviously yep. it was taken in, you know, late summer, early autumn. Yep. Because um, the apple crop. Yep. Yeah, and I suspect it was probably uh, some sort of industry promotion for the district. Yep. And can you even, now these are black and white photos I should frame. We're yes. going to put these photos up online because Pam looks absolutely gorgeous. She's making fruit picking look incredibly glamorous um, and easy for that matter. And that's why they're really hero shots, aren't they? They are. Uh, even like some of the old, decades older shots. And when I say decades older, some going back to the 30s. These 1930s families are wearing their best pants, their best shirts, their best frocks and sun hat, picking apples for the government. It's like, this isn't how it looks like every day. No, it isn't. <laughs> it? Because those picking bags were very, when they were full of apples, they were very heavy. heavy. Oh, yeah. And they're doing a bit of an action shot with three bins in this shot yes. as Pam, yes. you know, is pretending to offload it all in here. Yes. Now, you were, your family farm was at Applethorpe. You were right beside the Department of Primary Industries there at Applethorpe on Rosler Lane. That's right. So I understand that too, your dad, he had a good working relationship with his neighbours too. Well, that's yeah. right, very much so. Yep. So we're looking at the Apple and Grape Harvest Festival and Centenary Celebrations Program. This gorgeous orchard, it's an apple orchard in bloom. This is actually your family's orchard. That's correct, yes. But you were able to confirm for me the very well-dressed couple strolling through the apples is nothing to do with no, the Scoose family nothing, whatsoever. Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> but what is interesting, and it, it, that, fa that photograph demonstrates, in those days apple um, orchards were farmed in a very different way. Um, the trees were much further apart and um, the ground was cultivated between. 
because they weren't irrigated in those days, not at all. There was no of course, irrigation. Yeah, I mean, there's no hail netting in that photo no, either, isn't it? A totally was, different look. Uh, well, it's all, it was a totally different style of farming. Yep. Now they close plant and irrigate, and they usually have clover or grass or something in the yep. laneways between. So it was quite different. There's so much we can learn from just one photo there. Yeah. And one of the big memories I have from when I was a child was when it rained, and I'd hadn't you, I'd forgotten this, but you got this wonderful smell of rain falling on dry earth. And in those days we had an awful lot of dry earth around because of the cultivating of the 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 paddocks. Yep. And um, between the orchards. And yeah, so so many differences. <laughs> Thank you. And now I'm going to go delve inside because I think, I'm willing to call it, I think one of the most glamorous photos of the Queens is the 72 because of the fashions. It's all big hair, it's big patterns, and if you weren't going big, go home. Tell us about, like, aqua blue was obviously so popular. Half, nearly half the entrants are all in that iconic aqua blue colour, aren't they? They are. And you know what I suspect? Because I certainly, I'd made my own dress and I suspect an awful lot of the others probably had as well. You made that gown. Yeah. Most most of our age group, we had to, we learned to sew. We had no choice. We didn't have access to purchased uh, um, uh, uh, dresses. Um, so if we wanted some nice clothes we had to make them ourselves I was learning to, to sew before I was 12. I'm almost speechless I mean I learned to sew in high school but it was a pocket tissue holder yes. I'm looking at a ball gown yes. a la 72 style yes and I suspect looking at those other dresses that an awful lot of them were too lovely why did you go aqua blue can you remember? Well, I, I, I don't know whether it was actually aqua, but probably because I have blue eyes and my father always said I look nice in blue. <laughs> you look stunning. It's absolutely amazing as a dress, yes. And you've got a choker and there's, I think the choker is matching the cuffs on that sort of puppy yes. sleeve. Yeah, Imagine, When sleeves. I look at that and I'm thinking, now, did I really make that? And, of course, I did. Yeah. No, it's absolutely stunning. And the big hair too, that. There's some ladies here in this photo. You're an incredibly buffant and beautiful group in 1972. And actually so many of you as well. What was it like as a group doing things like fundraising and promoting the district in the lead up to the festival? I don't think as a group we tended to come together as uh, our, our fundraising was fairly individual with our sponsors. Yep. I can't remember group type um get togethers yeah yeah okay um, yep. as entrants did you do deportment and etiquette as part of your entrant um, not duties i don't think formally we did yeah okay yep. we may have had we may have had somebody give us some tips but i really can't remember no that's okay i was going to say you're sitting so elegantly for the official photos Maybe you didn't need any etiquette sort of stuff there. I think it's looking great. Of course I'm buttering you up, Carolyn. Tell me about the fundraising, though. Like what you said, you did a lot with your sponsors trying to figure out the type of activities or, yeah, yeah or the just type of fundraising. What sort of things did you do? Well, Dobson, the Dobson, um, we had several dancers in the in the Dobson packing houses, for example, because oh, in those fantastic. days, in those days, there were dancers nearly every week in various um, halls around the district. 
with a big Glen Upland Ballandine, whatever. And and I remember there were at least two or three um, uh, dancers at at the packing house. What sort of music do you, can you remember? Well, what takes you straight back there to the dance floor? Well, I imagine not that I was into pop music. I must say, not, <laughs> I really wasn't. But I imagine the Beatles would have been up there. I mean, goodness gracious. True. T-Rex, he had some huge albums, 71, 72. Probably, but, you know, you'd have to speak to my my, my husband is <laughs> 10 FM. You know, he's involved ah. in community radio, so he's very much more into the music um, yep. scene and history. But, yes. And the rise of Bowie too in the early 70s. Well, the, I think I'll have a chat with Bowie. Well, the Seekers, the Seekers were Seekers, very much yes. in, in their... Um, Marianne Faithful. Um, yeah. There's quite a few others. But what did you enjoy listening to when you were that sort of that sort of thing? But yeah. I can I can't ever remember going out and buying out records and things like that. Yeah. Did you love the radio? No, I used to read. I was always a reader. Ah, yeah. You all had an interview as entrance. Mm-hmm. I've been fascinated talking right from the fifties. I've interviewed some of the nineties queens as well. I'm asking this of everybody. Do you remember what they asked you in your interview with the panel? Certainly questions about the district and about the industry in the district. I cannot remember specifics. I do remember that I think it was Mr Small, Bruce Small, he was the mayor of the Gold Coast at the time. He was the chairman of the panel. And I can't remember. You know how when you're confronted by that sort of situation it's almost it's almost like you're on automatic yes and it's very hard to recall exactly what happened yeah did Um, you get asked about current affairs current affairs and the other thing we had to do we had to stand up and make a impromptu speech oh how did that go well I don't really know I can't imagine I would have been brilliant um but it was it was definitely about the it was definitely about the district it was probably, ah, that was the topic. That was yep. the topic. Yep. Yeah, about the the industry, you know, the apple and, and um, horticultural industry. And in terms of current affairs, do you remember what you were talking about in your interview as current affairs at the time? No, I can't. I really can't. And yet, it was a dynamic time because um, it was post, you know, the Vietnam years. There was an yes. awful lot of militancy at the university, so. Young people were very engaged at that time in, yep. in in current affairs and politics. And it was like pop culture in terms. Beatles had broken up. John Lennon was huge. huge. The rise of Bowie. Yeah, things like apartheid. Uh, you know, there's yes. all sorts of um, things like that that were very yep. um, important in, yep. in, in youth culture at that point. I mean, JFK was shot as well in 69. So you're coming off the back of that, the tumultuous years after that. Well, that's right, the civil rights movement in America, Vietnam War. It was all very heady stuff, really. And when you were saying, like, you weren't so much into your pop music, you were a huge reader. Reader. What did you love to read? Well, Well, certainly novels, but I really was interested in things like the social issues and so forth, like apartheid and, 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 and so forth. That is a really good segue into Carolyn after being queen. You got your nursing qualification. What did you do next? 
Well, after I've um, got my, uh, I graduated, I went down to Melbourne and I was working in children's um, nursing down there um, for two years. And then I got a job. I'd always, all through my youth, I wanted to work in wild, wild wilderness places with other cultures and and I um, and I managed to land a job with the AIM, which was the Australian Inland Mission, and um, I was sent up to Fitzroy Crossing in the mm. Kimberley as a community health sister. And now, tell us a little bit about for those who are younger, who because um, it was certainly not around. I don't even think when I was a kid growing up. What is the Australian Inland Mission? What did they do? The Australian Inland Mission was formed by every, I think most Australian children have heard of Flynn of the Inland and the Pedal Wireless. Yep. And his organisation, the Inland Mission, um, it was associated with the Presbyterian Church, was responsible for the construction of hospitals throughout the air, um, outback that were largely... Uh, staffed by nursing sisters that belong to the AIM, <clears throat> Inaminka, Birdsville, mm. um, Clonka, um, Cohen, North Queensland, um, Fitzroy Crossing, Halls Creek. There were several throughout outback Australia at that time. Now, what was it like being a young nurse at Fitzroy's Crossing? Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> what were some of the health issues that were sort of like your bread and butter issues you were dealing with? The bread and butter issues were leprosy and, well, the official name is Hansen's disease. It was probably our main um, control issue, immunisation of children, um, obviously uh, Children's diseases were, infectious diseases were a big problem, um, pregnant women. Uh, so we'd go out to the cattle stations and to the Aboriginal camps and and um, so all of our our medical supplies and so forth were in our vehicles. Yeah. And when you're talking, I, I'm just astounded that it's still so close in terms of time that we were dealing with things like leprosy. That sounds like something that's ye old timey, you know what I mean? Well, it was a huge problem in the Kimberley prior to sulfonamides. So the sulfur drugs were um, found or came to being in the 30s. Prior to that, the only treatment for leprosy was actually to put um, people with leprosy in uh, leprosariums and the Aborigines were terribly, terribly susceptible. Um, they had no um, immune uh, ability to fight it. Yeah. And um, so it was a, a big problem. How long were you in remote and regional communities with AIM? Well, in AIM, I was I was in the I was in the Kimberley for eighteen months, but I was in the, Australia's North for altogether almost five years. And what happened after that? Did you continue to work with AIM or was there a change? There was a change. I went yeah. overseas for a while after that and um, I came back and I got a job on the tip of Cape York Peninsula. Hang on a minute. Where would you go overseas? You can't just <laughs> drop that out and not tell <laughs> I us. I went overseas. <laughs> I, I had a lovely trip actually. I went to America first up. I had an opportunity to stay with um, friends that were... 
um, in Santa Fe in New Mexico in mm-hmm. in um, the States and then um, I I did I went to France and then specifically I went to Nepal and I spent a couple of months with the Tibetan refugee community there. What was that experience like? Well, unbelievably exciting, wonderful yeah. actually. What what type of timing are we talking? Mid seventies by now that you were no in towards the late. Um, I went to the Kimberley in seventy uh, five, late seventy five. So that would have been seventy seven. Yeah, and being with the Tibetan refugees, like what did that open your mind to in terms of what they were dealing with in Nepal? <sighs> Well, I would te- uh, quite a um, because the Tibetan refugees were Buddhist for a start, um, and most Nepalese were Hindus, so there was that point of religious difference, which was quite enormous. And they were, you know, they were earning a living by mostly weaving carpets. And I have some Tibetan carpets from those days here. There's one. I noticed there. your rugs. Yeah. yeah. So they yep. were, they were, so that's how, um, yeah, that was, yeah, quite poor, really. Yeah. And what region in Nepal were you based? Just outside of Kathmandu. Yeah. And yep. Um, I also went up to the Annapurna, or to um, Pokhara, which is up near the Annapurna Sanctuary. Yep. I'm just so pleased that I did it in those days. The same as working in the outback then. It still was the outback. You know, and very wild, and really. And wild, yeah. no bitumen ra- roads. We, you know, we depended on two-way radio, the RFDS radio. Yep. Um, and lots of places didn't have telephones. Um, the cattle stations were managed in a very different way. With horses, there were no helicopters or aeroplanes yes. or anything like yep. that in those days. Look, we've referred to Pete, the significant other, uh, yes. earlier in this recording. You met him overseas. Tell us how you met him. After I, I did my midwifery a little bit later or in between, um, and I loved midwifery. And um, in 1981 I went to Vanuatu and I had a, um, a job with Save the Children Fund training midwives. And um, that's and Pete was working there at the same time. He was in um, the, one of the Northern Islands. He was based in Santo and he was working a combination job with the local um, Van- Vanuatu government and the British government and he was the Northern District's vet. So the vet met the midwife. Yeah. yeah. Yes. What sort of, you know, veterinary things was he dealing with? As a, I'm just thinking about, I'd love to hear, but also for you, what sort of midwifery things were you dealing with in a tropical island sort of setting as well? Well, first of all, um, Pete's Pete's job more than anything was not so much medical veterinary work, I mean, although he obviously did some of that, it was helping um, uh, local farmers uh, with their small cattle industry. Yep. Um, And out on the outer islands and helping, you know, they had to barge their cattle off these little islands and they'd build these bamboo races out into the sea and that sort of thing. 
whereas when I arrived in Vanuatu, there were, um, I think, two trained midwives in the whole country. And um, Carolyn, this is incredibly. Yeah, that's right. You know, so that's incredible. The British yeah. and the French had been there for, you know, 60 or 70 years. Yeah. Uh, it was a British French condominium. And yeah. they hadn't done a huge amount of training. I mean, they trained general nurses, but they weren't specifically midwifery trained. Yep. And, um, you know, so there were quite a lot of problems because of that. Yes. Um, you know, so that's what our brief was. And so every year I, I think I did three courses and um, the trained midwives would go back to their island health centres and, and um, they had fairly primitive conditions. I mean, a lot of them had no access to electricity, so they are delivering babies by by lamplight and so forth. So, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we managed to, to it, it was an area in nursing where a small changes can create huge advances in, in, in outcome for both mother and baby. Yes, absolutely. How long were you there doing the altogether, training? Altogether. I was there nearly six years altogether. Was that an incredibly rewarding experience to absolutely. see the changes implemented? Yes. and yes. Yeah, education, yes. actually. Yeah. And, and I think Pete had a similar experience in Vanuatu because often in developing countries you don't often get that sense of pushing change like that. Yeah. And as I said, I mean, it was small incremental things that made huge differences. Now, I'm curious, how does the midwife, with this incredible experience working in <laughs> regional and remote communities in Australia, but also regional and remote communities overseas, how does she become the garden designer? What led to that? Well, Pete and I um, left Vanuatu. Um, we got married. Um, I was in my late 30s. I'm always down for a romance story in these <laughs> interviews, yeah. And I think both of us had had such a, as I said, Pete had worked in uh, other developing situations in Afghanistan, in Africa, etc. And Vanuatu was almost like the cherry on the cake as far as yes. our uh, ability you know, our working ability, um, what we managed to um, achieve, um, the mutual positive feedback we got from working there. And I guess we had had a time in our life where we thought it would be rather lovely to sort of settle down and have our own spot, have our own place. And um, What did you choose? You know, where was the settling down going to be at that time? Well, when we left Vanuatu, because Pete's English... Um, we went to England, we went to England and Europe for eighteen months, and I just assumed we'd settle there. And I think because Pete had never worked in England, he had always worked overseas, that he just didn't feel settled there. And I don't think he could feel comfortable in in those sort of cramped, confined sort of place, really. Yeah. You know, where privacy and um, space is, is a huge premium, and so. <laughs> We came back to Australia and we bought Glenrock. Ah, Glenrock. So now Mm. I've filled in one of my gaps. So to just give this a bit of context for those who are listening, buying at Ballandine for me, I knew of a Carolyn Robinson garden designer. She had amazing gardens and there was an open garden and it was just south over the border. 
and I never quite got there. I tried to see if it was open. So you're always someone on my periphery, but I never quite got to see you as the Glenrock Gardens, Carolyn Robinson. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing there at Glenrock. We bought Glenrock in 1989 and um, all I can say is that I, I had this enormously powerful urge to garden. I wanted to garden. It was like some sort of genetic thing had just been switched on. I guess it's it's a nurturing thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. So I went from babies to plants. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities, isn't there? there that is tending, really. that care, care, that constant monitoring, yeah, yeah, all those sorts right. of behaviours. Yeah. yeah. And yep. I often think that when people say they don't have a green thumb, well, um, it all it means if you've got a green thumb is that you sort of see plants as living things with needs similar to our own. Yeah, yeah. I recall too that you were that garden designer, you, you were described to me by, you know, all these random three, third-party people I can't remember now, but you were always described as someone who was playing more of a long game with her garden design. You were thinking more about how will that tree look in 20, 30 years, even 50 years in your garden design, not just that instant hit of colour or, uh, or greenery. Probably, though I must say. At Glenrock, I mean, I can't, I can't say that I did envisage the size the trees were going to get in the beginning. Because <laughs> it was a four seasons garden. It was, it was definitely a four yeah. seasons garden, and um, and I didn't know much at all at the beginning. Yeah. So it was an incredible journey I made. Um, what were you most proud of about Glenrock Gardens? Well, I guess it was the the the, the journey itself. The 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 learning of both design as well as the plants. It was a very extreme climatic um, place from a climatic point of view in that we were in a valley so we had really severe frost. It was very cold. I couldn't grow Australian natives because it was so cold. I mean, one year we got down to minus 16. You know, oh, that's good. That's, yeah, I that's mean, a bit of a record. Certainly those sorts of temperatures we haven't seen since the turn of the century, yep. um, you know, it's getting certainly much, much warmer and um, and fewer frosts. Yep. So did you get snow at Glenrock? Very rarely. And yeah. by and large you don't really expect snow because um, our winters are dry. That's why yep. we get so many frosts. We get relatively little rain. We, we get much less rain in the winter than we do in the summer. And I think it's good to put context there too for our listeners. Like whenever Stanthorpe's on Snow Watch, yes. um, the excitement builds around it. If Stanthorpe doesn't get any flurries, you can almost be guaranteed it's worth that extra 40 minutes from Stanthorpe to Mount Mackenzie on the yes. outskirts of Tenerfield to get your snow flurries. Well, that's right. Are you on the Mackenzie side, Mount Mackenzie side of town, or were you on the eastern side of town? We were on the northern side of Tenderfield. Glenrock ah, was the yep. northern side of Tenderfield. Yep. Um, yes, yeah, so we looked out towards Mount Mackenzie and the doctor's nose and yep. it's over 4,000 feet. So, yes, it would catch it would catch the snow. Yeah, yeah. And what were you, like what were some of your favourite things that you planted there? Well, I think my, my um, discovery of herbaceous perennial plants was 
the winner really. Yep. And that was dictated by the climate because I could grow, well, certainly in, in the beginning, very few evergreens. So it was plants that came from uh, very cold winter climates like the North American prairies that have a, a dormancies. Like, for example, Echinacea is a North American prairie plant. I've learnt something new. And yeah. and it can handle minus 20, minus 25. So, and it totally disappears in that. I mean, they don't totally disappear here, but they were, they were the sort of plants that I um, sought. Yeah. And they weren't available in nurseries. So that's how I it developed, really. And you developed a nursery too yes, at your gardens. Based on those herbaceous perennial plants, flowering perennial plants. Yeah. What some of the gardens designs that you're most proud of you've done for other, you know, house owners or property owners? Um, let me think. Uh, I think some of the ones I've enjoyed the most is working with people to almost precipitate their gardening, enable their gardening, you know. So I advise and I help, and but they themselves learn how to do it. They're the sort of ones that I'm, in retrospect, I most enjoy rather than going in and doing a lot um, with bigger gardens. But then, of course, you've got to find somebody to maintain them yes. afterwards, which is never as satisfactory. The commitment for nurturing. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And um, so when people themselves... Um, build with my help their own gardens, get to know their plants they enjoy, get to know how to manage them, then it'll work yep. much, much more. Now you've got some of your designs open to the public for the Stanthorpe's Apple and Grape Harvest Festival for their open garden scheme um, and we'll make sure we put those on the socials so people know they can combine a bit of Festival Queen history with the love of gardening. I also just think it's great. It's sort of coming full circle here. I am surprised how many of the festival queens all have connections until I did this podcast. So I believe one of your open gardens is the former property of the Papagallos in Ballandine, which we all now know as Accommodation Creek Cottages, and they're going to be an open garden. I think so. I'm not exactly sure, as I was saying. Yeah, we're going to fact check it, aren't we? Yes, yeah. we do. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly did a lure. Yeah. Um, or azure, I mean. Yeah, I did azure, azure but I also road, yeah. helped with a, a, a lure, which is on the other side. All these similarly named, named places, places to stay. <laughs> so I did another one yeah. very close to... Um, azure, but I'm not exactly sure whether it was Accommodation Creek. I really want to do a garden tour with you. I mean, I'm driving up in this wonderful boulder country, this New England country of Australia. We're just south of Tenerfield. If I keep driving south, I'm going to end up at Glen Innes. And this is spectacular. The We've got this mountain range that we're staring at. There's a pond in front of us. The river is running, the Bluff River. And the mountain, it's the Bluff River Wilderness Reserve. Ah, and there's a wilderness um, lodge too that you no, can stay not, in here? Or no, is it down on it's, it's All of this country to the north here, between here and Bluff Rock, yeah, Bluff is, Rock. is part of the Bluff River Wilderness Reserve. So there, there are no tracks or roads or anything. It's just wilderness. It really does look wild and it, yes. it in fact is. Yeah, yeah it is. It's such a spectacular setting. Your garden's amazing. We're going to go for a walk through there. Before we get up and 
take a promenade through your garden. What advice have you got for the young ambassadors in the lead up to the gala weekend of the Apple and Grape Harvest Festival? I think the most important thing is to, to know as much about your district and its history as possible. Why is that important? Well, because there is nothing worse than being asked the question and not being able to answer it when when you are actually representing that, that district. And the history is important as well. You know, and it is an interesting history. You know, I think it's... From Tim yep. through to, um, you know, the... The fact that the Italian immigration um, past uh, just post Second World War was such an important one for the Stanford district and what happened afterwards. You know, the the the, the wine industry was because of the Italian. Um, the Italians started it, and I think that's a really interesting historical uh, milestone. Is what I'll use as a word that immigration of Italian families. Oh, it was hugely, huge. Yeah. Especially when I was a child. Absolutely. And that actually really changed to the way we did things like gardening. Like the kitchen gardens of most homes dramatically changed. I mean, I'm sure capsicums, eggplant, all of those sorts of things weren't grown. And tomatoes, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. not the the same. And even getting things like we joke about around Ballandine, all the old phones. Uh, farm houses yes. would have a quince tree, a locust yes. tree, a yes. fig tree and yes. a mulberry tree um, and then other variations. There was always these sort of four or five kitchen garden trees that were always in the back. Um, and you can t- it, the quince tree in particular because oh, we yeah. do, we've missed out on a quince tree. We've got all the others yes. in our backyard. Yeah, well, Glenrock had an old quince tree. Yeah, the old quince tree, mm. things like that. But also around here... I want to just talk about south of the border here. Tenterfield's proudly a tree town. Like there's the cork tree that you That's can go right. visit. And there's the, the Lebanese pin, cedars. And the Pin Oak Avenues. Pin Oak Avenues, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I am quite convinced Tenterfield Shire Council makes me slow down to 50 kilometres an hour just so that I can bask in the autumn glory that is all these wonderful deciduous trees. And Tenterfield's home too. Um, the most northern chestnut um, farm or grove yeah, that's right. as well. So there's just an incredible um, botanical uh, living history here or living heritage, I guess is another way of framing it. Um, there's also incredibly old trees still out at things like Tenerfield Station. Station. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Do you love being a part of this sort of broader community which has just got incredibly gorgeous old trees but also these emerging new gardens yes i i do i one of the things that drew us to tenderfield in fact was the trees i remember us driving around and admiring them so definitely relative to stanthorpe um um you know there are many more trees uh up and down the creek around stanthorpe now but it wasn't renowned for for for, um a lot of old trees yes um like tenterfield has but tenterfield also it was a very different district it was a pastoral district and there are some lovely um old stone and um buildings in in tenterfields which i I suppose it reflects the wealth of the district yes yeah two districts by comparison yep um 
Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? You can be 40 minutes down the road. Right. It's the same boulder country. On an eight-game averages, they're still both cold, but they're all wooden houses in Queensland, Queensland. but it's stone here, yeah. Well, stone and brick. Yeah. But that is a New South Wales thing, so obviously, uh, and, of course, the, the wooden is, is more Queensland, isn't yes. it? But the soils are different, you know, the, the gritty granites, um, larger crystals in the Stanthorpe soils are, are probably considerably poorer by and large, to around Tenterfield itself. You know, they talk about the Tenterfield soils, uh, they talk about blue granite. It's a much finer, it's a volcanic. So it's it's certainly, it's not like basalt, it's it's still fairly poor, but it's it probably supports deciduous tree growth better than what Stanthorpe soils do. Oh, I'm finding that fascinating. And I'm the trap rock girl who thinks she's on the worst lot of the lot. Well, that's right, <laughs> because you've got very shallow topsoils. <laughs> probably stick to the grapes <laughs> well actually grapes wouldn't be happy on trap prop because it's not well drained <laughs> i can't win <laughs> hey caroline should we go for a stroll yes. around your yards all right you gotta finish my apple cake Thanks i think so. that sounds like a great idea this is the longest morning tea in history isn't it in the next episode of beyond the crown we go back back to the 80s to talk to Teresa matthews who generously donated her Queen memorabilia to Stanthorpe Museum and it's on display for you to see. Beyond the Crown has been made possible by the Regional Arts Development Fund, RADF, and it is a partnership between the Queensland Government and the Southern Downs Regional Council to support local arts and culture in regional Queensland.